As we've been looking at this letter together, we've seen that Paul's life was full of troubles. In fact, in this letter, he gives us several lists of his troubles, and they were pretty significant. We can see that. And yet, Paul also describes himself as being joyful. So we know that the joy Paul had must have been a solid joy. If it was a fluffy, pie-in-the-sky kind of joy, it wouldn't have lasted. The troubles that Paul went through would have swept his joy away if it hadn't been solid and substantial. The joy that Paul had was able to survive even the toughest of circumstances. And this morning we're going to look specifically at the part Christian relationships played in Paul's joy. So we're not certainly going to be saying everything there is to say about solid, substantial joy. For example, the New Testament tells us that the foundation or the starting point for Christian joy is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in what he achieved on the cross. What we're going to see this morning assumes that foundation is already in place. There can be no solid joy without that faith in Jesus. But then our passage looks specifically at relationships that are based on that foundation. Our passage is about relationships, a key to solid joy. Not the key, but a key. You can see there that we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, and I'll read through to verse 16. In the Church Bible, it's page 1162. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance." For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. 
So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. The actor and comedian Adam Sandler has said, It's important that I surround myself with people who make me happy. It's important that I surround myself with people who make me happy. Now, I don't know Adam Sandler, but his philosophy is a recipe for superficial, short-lived relationships. If you're not making him happy, well, you're in danger of being out in terms of being one of his friends. The Apostle Paul had a very different approach. He worked for happiness in the people who surrounded him. When it came to Paul's happiness, he didn't expect the people around him to do all of the work. Paul himself worked for happiness in his relationships. And as we look at his example, we're going to find three ways that we need to follow Paul if we are to find the solid joy that he found in relationships. First of all, in verses 2 to 7, invest seriously in Christian relationships. The wording of that point is important. There are lots of things we could say about relationships with non-Christians. That was part of our focus a couple of weeks ago. But this passage is about relationships with Christians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And the word seriously is also important. As we'll see, when it came to Christian relationships, Paul was not a low-risk investor. He didn't invest half-heartedly. He went all in with these people. He didn't cut his losses when things started to go badly. That's often what financial investors do. If the value of their shares is falling, they sell and get out. I know that's not what you're supposed to do, but it's still what often happens. But when Paul invests in people, he doesn't bail out when his investment seems to be suffering. Paul is prepared to stay with the relationships. And so his example challenges us to invest seriously in Christian relationships. Now we know the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians has been a rocky one. That's clear from 1 Corinthians and from the early part of this letter. These people have professed allegiance to Jesus, but they have a lot of trouble living out that allegiance they profess. We know there are divisions among them, Quarrels. Some of the believers are even taking one another to court. 
the well-off members of the church have been showing serious insensitivity to the poor members of the church. There has been ongoing sexual immorality, ongoing involvement with pagan religion. And not only are all these sins present in the church in Corinth, there's a culture of tolerating these sins in the church. Paul's job is to lead these believers to forsake their sin. His job is to lead them to live out their allegiance to Jesus, to be the new people they are in Jesus. And so there's been no end of friction and difficulty between Paul and the Corinthians. They haven't always taken kindly to Paul's efforts at leading them. And it would be very easy for Paul to just throw up his hands and forget them. After all, it's not as if Corinth is the only church Paul is involved in. He has planted churches all over the place. He could easily have just written Corinth off. It would have left him with more time and energy for other churches. But Paul is not the kind of investor who walks away. Look again how he writes to them in verses 2 to 4. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds." For all the problems in Corinth, for all the things that are wrong, there have been signs that God is at work among these people. And there has been one very recent sign of this. We'll get to that in a moment. But the point to notice here is that in the midst of many problems, Paul is still able to be greatly encouraged when he sees any sign of progress. When he gets a hint that God is at work among these people, then his joy knows no bounds, as he puts it. Someone has said others may have been overwhelmed by the difficulties. Paul was overwhelmed by the one matter for thanksgiving. And this is an ability you and I need to develop. We need to pray for it, and we need to take steps to nurture it. Often our natural tendency is to focus on the difficulties and to disregard the signs of God's grace at work. But in order to develop this ability, we have to invest seriously in Christian relationships. If we only have a loose attachment to Christian fellowship, if we're fair-weather investors, then we're never going to stick around in difficulties. We're never going to sift through the problems to see the reasons for thanksgiving. We'll just bail out. We'll cut our losses and take our low-risk investment somewhere else. The reason Paul stays with these people, the reason he experiences unbounded joy by even one sign of progress, is because he's committed to these people for the long haul. He says in verse 3, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. 
If you're that invested in something, there will be encouragement and joy over even little signs that God is at work. I mentioned that Paul has a specific sign of progress in mind. Look again at verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Here Paul is picking up and he's continuing something he started explaining back in chapter 2. He had visited the church in Corinth and it had turned out to be a painful visit. It seems he'd become aware of some sin in the church that needed to be dealt with. He'd confronted an individual about their sin and then been publicly attacked by that individual. And the church, it seems, had done nothing. At that point, Paul had to move on from Corinth, and rather than returning to the city later for another painful visit, he chose to write instead a tearful letter. He urged the church to deal with the situation. Then he sent his co-worker Titus to carry the letter to Corinth, and he arranged to meet Titus later to find out how the letter had been received. That's the background to what Paul says in verse 5. But why did he have no rest in Macedonia? Well, the answer is because he was longing to know how Titus and the letter had been received in Corinth. The NIV reads, this body of ours had no rest. But actually, the word used refers not just to the body, but to the whole person. Paul had neither physical nor emotional rest as he waited for Titus. I'm sure we've all had the kind of experience Paul is talking about. Maybe we're waiting to hear some news. Maybe the results of a test. Or news about a husband or wife who's in the operating theater. Whatever it is, we can neither sleep or be at peace until we hear the outcome. That's what Paul is talking about. Sure, in his case, there may well have been additional things for him to worry about. He mentions conflicts on the outside. He may have had to deal with a few physical beatings. But he was also suffering fears within. The great Apostle Paul was so seriously invested in the Corinthian church that he had no rest as he waited for news from Titus. Now, you and I might look at this and think, well, who needs that? If that's what it costs to be seriously invested in Christian relationships, no thanks. But look what Paul goes on to say. Solid, substantial joy is only possible if we're willing to go through distress on the way to joy. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Now we know that Paul wasn't just restless as he waited for news, he was downcast, downhearted. He feared the worst. 
The worst in this case would have been that his letter had made things worse. That the Corinthians not only turned even more against Paul, but that they failed to deal with their sin. We've noticed plenty of times already in this letter, Paul is not Superman. And here we see it again. He is in in emotional turmoil. But in Paul's weakness, Paul testifies that God comforts him and sustains him. How? Through the arrival of Titus and through the report that Titus brings. It turns out the Corinthians had welcomed Titus and they had responded well to the letter from Paul. They had made it clear they were invested in their relationship with Paul. And so, Paul says, the combination of Titus refreshing company and the news he brought meant that my joy was greater than ever. The man or woman who professes to be a Christian, yet who refuses to invest seriously in Christian relationships, well, they might avoid a certain amount of distress. But they're going to miss out on the solid, substantial joy that God brings through Christian relationships. God seldom, if ever, just zaps people with joy. He has chosen to bring us joy in the midst of the struggles and the awkwardness of Christian relationships. That's the way God has set it up. And you and I miss out if we stay safe and stick with low-risk investments in the church. Sure, we'll never have to suffer the distress that can come with deeper relationships. But we'll never know the solid joys either. You and I live in a culture of short-term investments. That's often true in business and in government and in marriages. But Christianity is countercultural. We're not to take the approach of our culture and apply it to our Christian relationships. So far, we've seen the fact that Paul invested in relationships. Now we're going to see how he invested. Look at verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Paul's example teaches us to work for the progress of others with humility and boldness. Investing in relationships doesn't just mean affirming our brothers and sisters. It doesn't just mean patting them on the back. It includes that, certainly. But it also involves being willing to challenge our brothers and sisters. That's what Paul did in his letter to Corinth. The letter that Titus carried to them wasn't full of sweet nothings from Paul. It challenged them to deal with the sin in their midst. 
Superficial relationships don't do that. They're superficial. Superficial relationships might be stress-free, but they don't help anyone. They don't spur others on to progress. Part of investing in relationships means working to see others grow and develop. And sometimes that involves saying hard things, like the things Paul said in his letter. But at this point, we need to be careful because some of us get a kick out of saying hard things. Some of us like kicking up a bit of dust in our relationships. That's just our tendency. As a habit, we go in hard, all guns blazing. If some of us are too afraid of upsetting others, some of us need to be a bit more afraid of upsetting others. And so it's helpful for all of us to look carefully at Paul's approach here. His approach as he works for the progress of others tells us that he shows both humility and boldness. First, notice the humility. Paul tells us that he wrote the difficult, challenging letter and then he regretted sending it. He wondered if he'd been too harsh in the letter. Look at verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. In other words, I don't regret it now, now that Titus has reported back to me. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. Paul was willing to say hard, challenging things, but he said them with humility. That's shown in his frame of mind after the letter had gone. He didn't just fire it off and forget about it. He started second-guessing himself. Did I take the right approach? I know I had to challenge them, but did I do it in the right way? Have I made things worse? Have I put my foot in it? Paul had the humility to know that he wasn't infallible. He knew he was capable of making a bad situation even worse. So until Titus came back to him, Paul worried whether he'd got it right. If you and I are quick to wade in and challenge others, if we don't think twice about firing off corrective comments or corrective emails, if you and I are like that, then Paul's humility teaches us to be a bit more concerned about doing damage. But if you or I are among those who hesitate to give any correction or warning to our brothers and sisters, then we need to notice that Paul did send his letter. He didn't shirk his responsibility. He wanted to see these brothers and sisters grow and progress as Christians. And he knew that involved in this situation confronting them about sin. Paul might have doubted his ability to do it well, but he knew that it had to be done. And so he grasped the nettle. Not because Paul enjoyed the thrill of reading the riot act, but because he was invested in these people. He felt a responsibility to them. 
and he would do what had to be done for their progress. As you and I invest in Christian relationships, we need both humility with regard to our own ability and also the boldness to do what needs to be done. We need to understand Paul was afraid of causing unnecessary sorrow, but he was not afraid of causing sorrow. Paul had no problem causing the right kind of sorrow. Church and Christian relationships are not about making everyone feel good all the time. Sometimes our desire for ultimate joy in a relationship will lead us to inflict short-term grief. Let me show you what I mean. Paul says he's happy now that he sent the letter. But look why he's happy. Verse 9. Now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Yes, Paul worried about the reaction his letter would get. But he always intended that his letter would bring sorrow. His worry was, will it be the right kind of sorrow? Will it produce godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? What's the difference? Worldly sorrow is all about regret. Godly sorrow is all about repentance. Suppose, for example, one of you confronts me about some sin in my life. And we'll assume that you do it in an appropriate, sensitive, loving way. If I react to you with worldly sorrow, I will focus on the consequences of my sin. For example, what's it going to do for my reputation in the church? I might be very sorrowful about the consequences of my sin, but it's because of what my sin is going to cost me. It's not because I want to turn away from my sin. I'm just sorry that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. And Paul says it brings death. That's because it never results in a real change of heart. But godly sorrow is very different. On the surface, it might look the same as worldly sorrow. The tears might be equally wet in both cases. But godly sorrow is about repentance. Instead of saying, what will my sin cost me? Godly sorrow says, I can see the ugliness of my sin. I can see how offensive it is to God. And because of that, I hate my sin. I hate that Jesus had to die for my sin. I will turn from my sin and turn to God. You see the difference. And it might take a while before it's clear which kind of sorrow we have. Not only are you and I good at fooling other people, we're very good at fooling ourselves. So we need to think long and hard about the outcome of each kind of sorrow. 
Worldly sorrow, says Paul, brings death. But godly sorrow leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Liam Golliker says, no one ever repents of repenting. When we repent, we're turning from sin that isn't worth having. Its pleasure is short term and it ends in death. And in repentance, we're turning to the God who is worth everything. The God who is eternally satisfying. No one ever repents of repenting. If you're clinging on to some sin that's separating you from God, make up your mind to let go of it and turn away from it. You will never regret it. Paul longed for the Corinthians to turn from their sin and find satisfaction in God. And because he wanted that good thing for them, He was willing to inflict sorrow on them by confronting them over their sin. He hoped that the result would be life-changing godly sorrow instead of death-bringing worldly sorrow. Paul could not control the outcome. But he was happy when Titus told him that he had seen godly sorrow in Corinth. How did he know that it was godly sorrow? Because of the results. Verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Evidently, the letter had really hit home with these believers. They'd woken up to the reality of the sin. They were alarmed and concerned. And they had acted to deal with it. They had been in the wrong. But they've put things right. And so now Paul considers them innocent. And then he underlines his aim in all of this. Verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. It seems that the injured party in all of this was actually Paul himself. But Paul's motivation was not getting his own back. His motivation was the progress of these believers. Remember, Paul is God's messenger to them. To be devoted to Paul is ultimately to be devoted to Paul's God. Paul's purpose in prodding the Corinthians with his letter has been to produce a demonstration of their commitment to God. And that's what has happened. If you and I are to invest seriously in Christian relationships... We have to be willing to work for the progress of others. And sometimes that will involve confrontation. With the aim of producing godly sorrow over sin. The kind of sorrow that brings repentance. 
that leads to salvation and that leaves no regret. And finally, if we're going to experience the solid joy of Christian relationships, we must learn to delight in God's grace to others. Paul's example shows us two aspects of this. First of all, it means we will rejoice when others receive blessing. Remember, Paul is talking about the news Titus brought to him from Macedonia. And he goes on in verse 13. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. The fact is, Titus received a better reception in Corinth than Paul had. And yet Paul's reaction is to be especially delighted by the blessing Titus received from Corinth. Paul is so invested in these relationships that he can truly rejoice with those who rejoice. Then in the final verses of our passage, we learn that even as he prepared to send the tearful letter to Corinth, Paul had been boasting to Titus about what a great bunch they were. In verse 14, I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. With these verses, we're essentially back where we started in this passage. Remember, Paul began by saying he had great confidence in these believers. He took great pride in them. Yes, there are still plenty of problems. We'll see that in the weeks to come. Chapters 8 to 13 deal with things that still need to be put right in Corinth. But Paul is committed to these relationships. And so he looks for the reasons to rejoice. He seeks out the signs that God's goodness is at work among these people. And then he broadcasts those things to others. Certainly, Paul will boldly confront the Corinthians about problems. But to others, like Titus, Paul will speak equally boldly about their merits, their strengths. If we follow Paul's example, we will advertise the strengths of others. It's always easy to find things to complain about in others. But investing in relationships involves advertising the strengths of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Incidentally, the fear and trembling that's mentioned here is directed to God, not to Titus. The point is, for all of their faults, the Corinthians have a healthy fear of God. When their sin is made clear to them, they turn from it. Paul's confidence in these men and women has not been misplaced. 
And ultimately, of course, Paul's confidence isn't in the Corinthians themselves. It's in the Holy Spirit who lives in the Corinthians. Paul has mentioned this several times in his letter. The last time was in chapter 6. We are the temple of the living God. When a man or woman puts their trust in Jesus, God comes to live in that man or woman by his Holy Spirit. So Paul's confidence is not based on the past record of the Corinthians. Their past record wasn't so good. Nor is Paul's confidence based on his own persuasive powers as a speaker and a writer. We've seen how worried Paul was that his letter had actually messed everything up. Now, Paul's confidence for the Corinthians is based on the only secure place it can be based. It's based on the power of God. Paul has seen God at work among these people. Paul has reason to believe they are truly God's people. And so he always finds reason to have hope for these people. Paul knows that the God who reconciled these men and women to himself is not going to give up on them. And so Paul won't give up on them either. We began with a quote from Adam Sandler. It's important that I surround myself with people who make me happy. We will never find solid joy if we approach Christian relationships that way. We'll just bounce around from one superficial, short-lived relationship to the next. The New Testament teaches us there's a better way. It's a more costly way. It involves serious investment. Sometimes it involves stress and sorrow for everyone involved. But by God's grace, when we commit ourselves to Christian relationships, there will be genuine progress and joy. So when this service is over, have a look at the brothers and sisters around you. Ask God to help you commit to those brothers and sisters in a deeper way. Make the effort to get to know them better. Invest in them. And watch what God will do. We're going to respond as we sing, Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing.